morning, everyone. Uh, if you have a Bible, could I invite you to turn to Second Kings, chapter 17? And just while you're looking that up, uh, let me ask you a question. I think I've asked it before. How's your worship? I don't mean how's your singing. Sounded good. I don't mean how's your giving or how's your praying or how's your serving, although all of those are part of it. But what I do mean is how is your love off and your submission to God? How is your love off God? And how is your submission to God this morning? Last week, we made the point that we were created to worship. And to worship means, and this is just one definition, but it's a good one, to worship means to honor with extravagant love and extreme submission. To honor with extravagant love and extreme submission. Now, we can worship any number of things, but true worship gives and directs that love and that submission to God, because God is seeking true worshipers. Uh, some of you are familiar or will have heard of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is a kind of used by some people. It's a succinct summary of the Christian faith in simple question and answer form. I think there's 107 questions and answers. But it starts with the question, what is man's chief end? In other words, what is our main purpose? What is our goal? And the answer is what, for those of you who know it, Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. In other words, or in one word, worship. That's man's, that's our main goal and purpose, to worship. The apostle Paul made the point that whatever you do, eat, drink, whatever you do, do it all. Everything we do should be for the glory of God. Psalmist tells us, bless the Lord at all times. And ascribe to the Lord the glory that He is due. Because worship matters, and worshiping God matters the most. So, let me ask you again. How's your worship? How's your love off and your submission to God this morning? And the reason I ask and, and kind of start with that question is driven by, or partly driven by, what we're about to discover as we read this next chapter in 2 Kings, which is a really important yet tragic landmark chapter in the, the story of Israel. A week ago, if you were here, we were in chapter 16, and we focused on events in Judah, which is the southern kingdom where Ahaz became king for 16 years. And during his reign, and at a really critical moment during his reign, Isaiah came to him and spoke into his life. And he said this to him. He shared this with him from God. If, oh, Gareth, that seems to have packed in. Can you go the next one? If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. This was Isaiah's word to King Ahaz. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. And last week we discovered that Ahaz didn't. He sold out. He didn't trust God. He didn't see faith as a viable option. And instead, he turned to the king of Assyria for help, and he surrendered to him. 
And he said to him, listen, King, I am your servant and I am your vassal or I am your son. And he ended up, we read and we discovered last week, Ahaz ended up as a result of redirecting his worship, if you like, he ended up not standing firm in his faith and flat on his face. And that warning, and we said this last, that warning is still relevant. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. And we made the the point that as a result of Ahaz not doing what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and again, you'll remember that he was the only king of Judah who was introduced in those ways. He's the only king of Judah who did not do right in the eyes of the Lord. And because of his poor choices, we said dark clouds were beginning to gather over the southern kingdom of Judah. The future did not look good, but in Israel, dark clouds had been gathering for some time. King after king after king did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And as a result of it now, the point we have come to, those dark clouds haven't just gathered. They are about to empty. Because we now come to the dismal, that is dismal, and the sorry end of the northern kingdom. 2 Kings 17 is a bleak chapter. Yo, it really is a bleak chapter chapter. But it's vital we read it for lots of reasons and primarily because we need to learn from it. We need to learn from Israel's mistakes. Why? So that we don't make the same ones. Because Israel's story of kind of failed worship and of apostasy, of this whole idea of abandoning the faith, that is a real and tangible risk for us. And we know people Maybe we are those people who have failed in our worship and who have abandoned or were in the process of abandoning our faith. At a couple of different points in the New Testament, we're told that that part of the reason that these events are recorded for us, Paul says this, the writer of Hebrews says this, part of the reason that these events are recorded for us is so that we might learn from them and not make the same mistakes. And so this story that we're about to look at may be hundreds of years old, and the incidents far removed from us sitting here in Belfast in 2020, but the relevance and importance of 2 Kings 17 is bang up to date and profoundly heart-searching. So again, I ask, how is your worship? How is your love of and submission to God this morning? Has your worship, we often ask this Has your worship this morning come from the heart? The way we're going to do this this morning is we're going to take it in sections and stages. So if you do, just stay seated. For those of you who are regular here, know that we often stand for the public reading of God's Word. We are going to do that later, but for the moment, let's hold on to our seats. But if you can see a copy of God's Word on a device or a hard copy, can you please have a look at it or share with somebody? So here we go. 2 Kings 17, we're going to start at verse 1 and read the verse 6 for now. In the 12th year of Ahaz, okay? So Ahaz has now been king in Judah for 12 years at the point of 2 Kings 17. And what it says then is, Hosea, 
son of Elah, became king of Israel, and he reigned up in the north for nine years. If you have a Bible, if you flick back to chapter 15 and verse 30, you discover that the reason Hoshea becomes king is because he assassinates the previous king, Pekah. And so, back to the text, back to verse 2, it's on the screen. It's no great surprise to read this about Hoshea. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. But then this next phrase is interesting. But not like the kings of Israel who preceded him. So, he was, he was kind of bad, but not that bad. Verse 3, Shalmaneser king of Assyria came up to attack Hoshea, who had been Shalmaneser's vessel and had paid him tribute. But the king of Assyria discovered that Hoshea was a traitor, for he had sent envoys to So, king of Egypt. I like short names like So. That's really easy to pronounce. So he sent envoys to So, king of Egypt, and he no longer paid tribute to the king of Assyria as he had done year by year. Therefore, Shalmanazar seized him and put him in prison. The king of Assyria invaded the entire land, marched against Samaria, which is the capital city in Israel, and laid siege to it for three years. And in the ninth year of Hoshea, that's his last year as king, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and deported the Israelites to Assyria, and he settled them in Hala in Gozan on the river Habor and in the town of the Medes. Let's pause there and take this in because this has finally happened. It's finally happened. The Israelites have been ripped out of the promised land. A phrase from the Bible, they have been vomited out of the promised land. They've been deported. They've been exiled. This is a desperately dark day. And they've been warned about it. Years previously, they'd been warned about it. We'll come back to that. But in the interim period, and we're talking a period of 200 years, but in the interim period, no reform had occurred. No repentance had emerged, no leader had called a halt to the compromise, and no prophet, no word of God had been taken seriously. And so they're out. They're out. All those warnings weren't empty words. It actually happened just like God said it would. And I know we've been coming to this point, back to this point week after week after week, but we cannot escape the fact that God is true to his word. There may be a time delay, and in this case, there was a time delay of 200 years, but God's word is still fulfilled, and it always will be. And part of the reason, and don't forget, part of the reason there is a time lag is this, grace. God's grace alone delayed the fall of Israel this long. They had countless chances, countless opportunities to listen and to learn because God is slow to anger and God does not want any to perish. And so his grace extends and his grace reaches out for ages and ages and ages. But if people continue to do their own thing and go their own way and ignore the voice and the word of God, then eventually there are consequences to face again, just as God said there would be. And in Israel and for Israel, the day of reckoning has come. The day of reckoning has arrived and they're out on their ear. 
because grace has been rejected. So we go back to the text and we'll discover why. Why has this awful situation developed that they'd been warned about, that they were told would happen? Why did it happen? Because it's really important we don't think that they're out on their ear because Assyria have kind of got their act together and have become so powerful and so influential in that particular region. They are not the reason. The Assyrians are not the reason the Israelites are out on their ear. The Israelites are the reason. It's what the people of God did or didn't do that has led to this nightmare. Look at verses 7 and 8. It says this, all of this took place because, right? So here's the reason. Not left in any doubt as to why they're out. All of this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them up out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They worshiped other gods. And followed the practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before them, as well as the practices that the kings of Israel, all those kings of Israel, all those ones who had done evil in the eyes of the Lord time and time, they had followed the practices that the kings of Israel had introduced. And then if you just glance down from 9 to 17, you've got this catalog of sin. This catalog of sins committed and compromises made. And if you've been following this series, none of what you'll read in 9 to 17 will come as any surprise. We've been bumping up against this behavior time and time again. These choices have become regular choices. Idolatry, compromise, disobedience. But it all stems from, it is all summed up by verse 7, which gets to the heart of the matter, which is the matter of the heart. They worshipped other gods. And from there, everything unravels. It still does. You see, the grace of God had rescued these people. In that verse, in verse 7, at the start of it, the narrator of this story takes us back to that momentous liberation event where God miraculously and dramatically brought the Israelites out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh. God had rescued his people from right under the nose of the powers of slavery and oppression, and he had set them free. And why did he set them free? He set them free so that they might go and worship. He set them free to worship, and he led them towards their promised land and a brand new and glorious future that lay ahead for them. But the very next sentence says, having done all that by the grace of God, having done all that, what did they do? They worshiped other gods. Commandment number one gets blown out of the water from the word go, and the mess and the mayhem ensues. And I'm not trying to oversimplify this. But the moment you do not love and worship God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, the moment there is not extravagant love and extreme submission, the moment something or someone else solicits the primary affection of your heart, the moment other gods become a priority and a focus is the moment the unraveling begins and you risk apostasy and you risk spiritual drift and you risk confusion and ultimately you risk exile. You find yourself in a place you never dreamed you would be. They worshipped other gods. 
And whenever God originally gave the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, let's, let's remember how he framed them. Let's remember how they begin or where they begin. Exodus 20, it starts, and God spoke all these words to the people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Echoes 2 Kings 17, 9. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. It was my grace, rescue, redemption, freedom. That is what I have done for you. So here is the first commandment. And later, here's how I want you to live. You shall have no other gods before me. That's how this is going to work. And then 2 Kings 17, years and years later, they find themselves in dire straits, and the explanation is given, the reason is explicit. You worshipped other gods. That, that's the headline. You sinned. After I brought you out, hi, here's where it all stemmed from. You worshipped other gods. All this took place. And then as you read on, the other gods are identified for us, aren't they? And just glance down, there's Asherah poles, and there's idols, and there's worthless idols, and there's golden calves, and there's starry hosts, and there's built so many gods consistently captured the parts of the people of God. So many other gods. And so God was regularly rejected and sidelined and eclipsed, and the result is disaster. Martin Luther, great church reformer, saw the critical importance of the first commandment when he said this, where the heart is right with God, and this commandment is kept, fulfillment of all the others will follow of its own accord. He worship matters. Worship in God matters the most. Tim Keller writing a few years later from Luther said, we never break the other commandments without breaking the first. It all flows from here. So how's your heart this morning? How's your worship? Is there anything else? Is there anyone else coming before God in your life at the moment? No other gods before me. But for me, so many other gods compete, solicit my affection, attract my heart, gain my devotion, my worship before God, if I'm honest. Extravagant love, extreme submission, And it wasn't that God had, had said this and stressed this on Mount Sinai and, and, and then kind of left them their own, to their own devices for 200 plus years. God knows the challenge of this. And so every time they got it wrong and they kept getting it wrong, what God did was he kept sending people to speak into their lives and to call them back to himself, back to the heart of worship, back into right relationship with him. It's further evidence of grace. And so we read, look at verse 13. We read that God sent prophets and seers, people like Elijah and Elisha, and we've tracked their stories. People like Isaiah in the life of Ahaz. People like Amos, plus unnamed prophets, repeatedly sent, repeatedly warning people, listen, come back to God. Stop following other gods. Stop worshiping other gods. Come back home. 
Turn from other gods. Submit to the one true God. But look at their response in verse 14, because not only was there this failure of worship and it flows, but there was a refusal to listen and a reluctance to trust. And so verse 14 says this, but they would not listen. And they were as stiff-necked as their ancestors who did not trust the Lord to God. And you know, we said here this morning, and God hasn't stopped speaking. He, He spoke into these people's lives. He speaks into our lives. He keeps speaking. It's why we open his word every single week here at Windsor. It's why we still read scripture, because we want to hear from. We want to listen to God. But the question always is, are we? Are we listening? We hear it, but are we listening? Am I prepared to listen? Am I willing to listen? The people of Israel weren't. And no matter how often God seemed to speak and how many prophets God seemed to send, it went in one ear and out the other, and this downward spiral just kept going. And in addition, they wouldn't trust God. They didn't trust God. Their faith, of you like, was fickle. It became less and less of an option in the real world. And so they started to place their trust elsewhere in other gods, in other kings. Because you see, if you do not stand firm in your faith, if you do not trust God, you will not stand at all. And so failed worship, blocked ears, misplaced trust, this is the reason more or less why Israel is exiled. Lots of other stuff, lots of other sin followed as a result and a consequence. But if you want to avoid making the same mistakes, if you want to learn from their mistakes, if you want to stay well clear, find yourself flat in your face of of abandoning the faith, then worship God alone. Or, Or to put it the way Jesus did when speaking to Satan, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Listen carefully to his word and trust in him with all your heart, no matter what. Well, back to the text, because as we discover what happens next, we we, we find that worship is still at the core of the story. And so if you can, we're, we're going to stand in a moment. We're going to read the rest of this story. But what I want you to do, I want you to note, please note how many times in the rest of this story the word worship appears. Okay? So if you're able, let's stand. This is from verse 24. The words will be on the screen and just follow them along. The king of Assyria brought people from Babylon and Kutha and Ava and Hamath and Seraphim and settled them in the towns of Samaria to replace the Israelites. So the Israelites have all gone. They've been deported. They've been exiled. They've been vomited out of the land, if you want. And so the king of Assyria goes about repopulating Samaria. They took over Samaria. They lived in its towns. And when they first lived there, they did not worship the Lord. Hmm. So he sent lions among them. Wow, that would be fun this morning, wouldn't it? 
They did not worship the Lord, so he sent lions among them, and they killed some of the people. And it was reported to the king of Assyria, the people you deported and resettled in the towns of Samaria do not know what the God of that country requires, and he has sent lions among them, which are killing them off, because the people do not know what God requires. Well, then the king of Assyria gave this order, make one of the priests you took captive from Samaria go back and live there and teach the people what the land, uh, the God of the land requires. So one of the priests who had been exiled from Samaria came to live in Bethel and taught them how to worship. Fascinating. Nevertheless, each national group made its own gods in the several towns where they settled. Down to verse 32, they worshiped the Lord, but they also appointed all sorts of their own people to officiate for them as priests in the shrines at the holy places. They worshiped the Lord, but they also served their own gods in accordance with the customs of the nations from which they'd been brought. To this day, they persist in their former practices. They neither worship the Lord nor adhere to the decrees and the regulations, the laws and the commands that the Lord gave the descendants of Jacob, whom he named Israel. When the Lord made a covenant with the Israelites, he commanded them, do not worship any other gods or bow down to them, serve them or sacrifice them to them. But the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt with mighty power and an outstretched arm, he is the one you must worship. To him you shall bow down and to him offer sacrifices. You must always be careful to keep the decrees and the regulations the laws and the commands he wrote for you. Do not worship other gods. Do not forget the covenant I have made with you. Do not worship other gods. Rather, worship the Lord your God. It is he who will deliver you from the land hand of your enemies. They would not listen, however, but persisted in their former practices. And even while these people were worshiping the Lord, they were serving their idols. And to this day, their children and their grandchildren continue to do what their ancestors did. Grab a seat. We're nearly done, by the way. I, I, re- I find this absolutely fascinating. The people that the Assyrians have brought back to repopulate Samaria, the capital city, to replace the exiled Israelites, they do not worship the Lord according to verse 25, which is hardly surprising. And so because they do not worship the Lord, God sends some lions to kill them. And I'll be really honest, I have no clue what to say about that. I've abs- I mean, I've read lots around it, right? And I have no clue what to say about that other than it is further evidence that worshiping the Lord really matters. Like it really, really matters. And so what does the king of Assyria do? He arranges for one of the captive exiled priests to return to Samaria to do what? To teach the people how to worship. 20, verse 20. I mean, it's incredible. Even pagan kings recognized that there was something about worshiping the Lord that makes sense. The people of Samaria, what they do is they worship the Lord. At least that's what it seems from verses 32 and verse 33. They both start exactly the same way. They worship the Lord, but they also make their own gods, and they serve them as well. And so in verse 34, and, and sometimes people get confused by verses 32 and verse 33, and then verse 34, because verse 32 says they worship, verse 33 says they worship, and then verse 34 says they did not worship the Lord. The narrator just calls them out to remind everyone, including us, about the nature and importance of genuine, true, liberating worship. So verse 35, he goes on to say, 
Don't worship any other gods. Don't bow down to them. Only serve the one true God. Verse 36, it is the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. Remember grace. Remember deliverance. Remember freedom. Remember liberation. Remember rescue. He is the one, and because of that, he is the one. He is the only one you must worship. Verse 37, do not worship other gods. Verse 38, do not worship other gods. Verse 39, rather worship the Lord. Are you getting the force of this? Are we clear on what is at the heart of this? True worship, proper worship, God-centered worship. What kind of worshipers does the Father seek? And he made reference to this at the start. What kind of worshipers is the Father looking at for according to Jesus? Those who worship him in spirit and in truth. And whatever else that means, the one thing everyone agrees on is this. It is worship from the heart that is directed and given to God alone. Extravagant love, extreme submission. And so the next version, we'll close this. The next verse brings us back to one of the other problems. It just says right at the very end, but the people weren't listening. They weren't, they weren't listening when they were in the promised land. They've been deported. Other people have been sent in and they've been told the same sort of thing. Listen, worshiping God is one of the most important things you can do. But they weren't prepared to listen either. The failure to worship God reverberates throughout this bleak chapter. The failure to worship God as he desires and as he deserves is quite possibly the overarching cause of the exile. And as a couple of New Testament writers remind us, you need to learn from these stories. Don't make the same mistake. And so we return to where I started. How is, oh, that was spooky. I hear, oh, it's all right, it's okay, I'm just, hearing voices, I thought, there for a minute, but I just, oh, that was nearly a moment there. <laughs> I thought of someone could stop David, bail out now. So I, keep, I come back to where I started. How is your worship? Oh, sorry, Gareth went through too much. How is your worship? And in terms of what, what is it meant to look like? What should it look like? Undivided allegiance to God undivided allegiance to God, trust in God in all areas of your life and an obedience to his way and his word. That's true worship. No other gods in his place. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Trust him. Obey him. May we honor God with extravagant love and extreme submission.